0: Chloe Hooper is the author of two works of nonfiction, The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire, and The Tall Man, Death and Life on Palm Island, which won the Victorian, New South Wales, West Australian and Queensland Premier's Literary Awards. She is also the author of two novels, A Child's Book of True Crime and The Engagement. Today I'm talking to Chloe Hooper about her new book, Bedtime Story. Chloe Hooper, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I've always thought of bedtime stories as a way to induce peaceful sleep and pleasant dreams, a a gentle departure from the day into the night. But you were on a quest to find something else. What were you looking for in bedtime stories?
1: I found myself in 2018 with a a six-year-old and a three-year-old and um, a partner who had just been diagnosed with a rare and aggressive leukaemia. And I was looking to the bookshelves for for help to explain something to the kids, which I guess is um, profound and all around us, but that is a way to talk about life and death.
0: What did you imagine you would find and what did you find?
1: Well, I imagined because um, my partner, Don Watson, and I, we're, we're both writers and we had a you know real weakness for getting our kids beautiful books. So they had a terrific library and there was a book on everything from Atlantis with 3D glasses and books on construction and, you know, when you go on an airplane and there were flaps and levers and, you know, every magical thing. And so I actually thought, oh, I'll... I'll you know, I'll find the perfect book which will see us through this experience and make a kind of roadmap of how we we manage. And and you know, in the end, it might start off with with somber images, but but they'll, it'll sort of end with a, a note of grace, and we'll we'll cherish it, and it'll help us through. And I actually found that most picture books for kids really steer away from talking about what some consider this darker topic.
0: And I guess there are plenty of books giving you advice on how to deal with the subject of death with children. Were they part of what you considered or are they part of what you discarded?
1: I did read those books, but I also sort of, I guess, went foraging for older stories because I, I thought now we have these kind of quite sanitised works and that obviously, you know, wasn't always the case and the, the kind of peaceful story you imagine a, a bedtime story to be. You know, obviously um, The Brothers Grimm is an example of, of stories which actually... Are full of gore and horror. And traditionally, children's stories were actually, you know, one of the, the main drivers of them was fear because they're actually ways of um, teaching children how to behave. So be fearful of strangers and straying off the path and
0: keeping out of the forest at nighttime.
1: Yeah, stay out of the forest. Um, you know, don't go and pick the wildflowers that the wolf suggested. You know, I, I sort of wanted to find what other sort of wisdom there, there was, but I, I had a strong sense from the beginning that, that storytelling was a way to get through the experience.
0: There's a little quote you've got in the book there, fairy tale deaths in the modern editions are so benign they don't bother you at all. Ought fairy tale deaths bother us?
1: Fairy stories are always a kind of alternate universe. Fairy tales take place in a world that's kind of adjacent to ours. With completely different rules and I um, mean there are some absolutely macabre murders that take place a step a stepmother killing her stepson and and turning him into a sausage and you know that she then feeds to her her husband in the juniper tree I, I think it's it's funny actually because uh, we always found that, that the kids preferred it when the stories were a little bit gorier they didn't want the the three little pigs to all survive they wanted the wolf to <laughs> They wanted the bacon, you know, not not just this kind of like smooth thing where everyone's happy in the end.
0: Well, bacon does have an intoxicating smell. (laughs) You take time to delve in the lives of authors of classic fairy tales, the Brothers Grimm, as you've mentioned, but Hans Christian Andersen, Francis Hodgson Burnett, Mary Lennox, uh, there's a whole list of them, Kenneth Graham, all of whom experienced difficult childhoods and lives that we might these days labelled traumatic, what did that research reveal to you?
1: Also Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Roald Dahl, Philip Pullman. That was um, really astonishing. When I sort of started to look beyond these writers' books, so many of the authors of our, you know our favourite books that often star orphans, um, these books were also written by people who had suffered childhood bereavement and so I realised um, an important lesson which was that grief is an a, a, um, ingredient in enchantment and so in a way the books that I had been looking for were actually all around us because those sort of painful experiences had in some ways um, are still there in the pages of those classic books and that's an interesting sort of... Way to think about the way that the light and the dark can can be there together.
0: I'm going to put to you a question that you actually put to yourself, I think. When did our children's bookshelves come only to include bright primary coloured books to exclude death?
1: One argument is that it it took place around um, the beginning of the 19th century, perhaps even after the Great War where so many young men had had died on the battlefields that for for British children's books, which certainly, you know, we in Australia, that's sort of largely came from from that country and when scholars of children's literature talk about the golden age of literature those are the books that they're generally looking at around that time there there became a kind of unwillingness to to sort of talk about it this publicly and it, it sort of coincided also with an amazing revolution in healthcare, so that people lived longer and probably also a shift towards people dying in hospital or in nursing homes. So children's books are, are an incredible mirror to, to society at large. And um, I think there's, you know, became a kind of idea that, that this was sort of unpleasant, and it wasn't really appropriate fare for, for children.
0: Have we lost the stories that address loss and death? Or, or have we just lost sight of them?
1: A lot of fairy tales uh, are, are given a kind of Disney treatment. I mean, you know, literally Walt Disney took a lot of these stories and they're made as kind of palatable as possible for a kind of, you know, modern parents. I think that those stories are there. And yet I think a lot of parents, you know, maybe they need to go through an experience like like the, like the one that, that our family went through to realise that actually talking about mortality doesn't need to be a kind of morbid conversation it can actually be a a way of starting to talk about life how do we lead the best life we can when you can speak honestly about the dark as well
0: is our instinct to protect children from death and loss justified or not do you think
1: Oh, it's funny. Um, you know, somebody was telling me that they they were driving with their three or four year old, and and the child from the back seat suddenly said, "All of these people are going to die." In that plain way that children have, and this woman said she turned around and said, "Sally, stop that! Don't say things like that. That's terrible." And actually, you know, of course, the child is is just stating a truth, and maybe that actually is a sort of a window in which you can can have a conversation that sort of broadens out and can be more philosophical about actually the beauty of life but instead we do tend to give these messages that this topic is foreboding even though grandparents will not live forever and certainly we're living in in very strange times you know with a where we've we're lucky to have vaccines but certainly you can't take it for granted that tomorrow is going to look exactly like today Bringing this in as part of, of the cosmology, however adults who are around children choose to do it, can actually be a richer thing rather than a, a more painful or uncomfortable thing.
0: Is it the case that we underestimate how much children really know and understand about death?
1: Oh, look, I think it's very sort of personal to the child what they do know or understand. But I mean, one of the best ways to start a conversation is just to ask them, what do you think happens? One of the advice books I read suggested that if, if a child asks you a question that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable, the, it's a good idea to turn around and say, well, what do you think? It actually can give an adult a moment to to compose themselves and, and sort of come up with a, a better answer. But I mean, what sort of working out what they actually already know is, is a really good starting point. Often children understand the mechanical aspect of death, that the person has stopped breathing and they won't see that person again, but then that's overlaid, as, as with adults, with a more sort of spiritual understanding of, of what that might mean.
0: You use quite an interesting phrase, and I think it's from Robert Graves, the cool web of language. What did he mean and what does it mean to you?
1: He was talking about the way that adults can use language to distance themselves from an experience. And we spoke about, you know, a lot of these very famous children's authors who you can say they actually use the writing of their books as a kind of palliative, you know, as a way of, of, of recasting the experience. And um, it takes a little while to learn the magic spell of, of finding the right word to describe something. So, I mean, stories are, are, are helpful to providing language to help navigate an experience.
0: Was that the case for you? Were you looking for that cool web that could explain your circumstances to your children? Through the writing of this book,
1: the web of language also sort of invites you into the web of stories. So um, the thing that's that I found helpful was taking sort of you know bits and pieces from from here and there and kind of I guess assembling or being inspired by the, these different works, so as to have at times complicated conversations with with my kids. I should say that that we have had a happy ending to date because my my partner is in remission but but my kids are aware that this is a part of life
0: talking about the stories again there are hints of your talent for storytelling in this book and some of them are quite poetic does this suggest for you as part of your search that you've realized that you might uh, be one of the people who starts to create these kinds of books for children
1: Ah, look, I mean, I, I have such admiration for those who, who make books for children and, I mean, there's such a an art in doing it. I, I don't flatter myself that I would be able to do it as well as they can. I'm thrilled that Anna Walker, who a lot of your listeners, you know, will, will know through her books, Florette and Mr Huff um, and some of her collaborations with Jenny Godwin has illustrated this book and obviously they're not the usual kinds of things that people would know of Anna's work. But, you know, I guess in a way the book itself is the book I wanted to find or or a book that that helped me through it. I mean, writing this helped me understand what we were going through and I I hope it can do that for some other people.
0: That just reminds me of something you mentioned a minute ago, that writing was the common palliative, and that seems to have been the case for you. And it also makes me ask, was there an emotional cost or perhaps an emotional credit earned to writing this book?
1: Look, I actually think it was a credit um, that, um, you know, I loved immersing myself in some of these old stories and I guess kind of, I hope, finding the treasure to to sort of use a fairy story analogy. And um, so, you know, I love some of the things that, that are sort of stuffed into it.
0: Although bedtime stories, in a sense, partly a manual for helping adults, help children understand death and loss, you still refrain from telling your reader what to think. But what would you like your readers to take from bedtime story?
1: When Don was first diagnosed, you know, both of us had this idea of not talking to the children about what had happened. And, you know, we were trying to protect them. And I now think that the atmosphere in our house changed in ways which the children probably couldn't articulate, you know, again, this idea of the cool web. And it was very tense in our house and and strange and, and stressful. And uh, the moment, you know, I realised, no, it's actually, there's something sort of disrespectful about not sharing with them what's going on, not too much information, but some. Once we sort of realised that my kind of phobia about talking about this wasn't helping them and that you can't keep everything in a in a sort of bright saccharine palette, and life isn't like that anyway, I then could find ways to, I hope, talk to them about the beauty in, in life despite what we were going through. And I, I hope other people can, if they find themselves in this situation, and, you know, mortality is a fact of life, so a lot of people will, that, that, that this is helpful for them.
0: I think readers will be pleased to know that the story does have a happy ending. And Chloe Hooper, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I've been talking to Chloe Hooper about her latest book, Bedtime Story. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.